Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister here at Westminster and the moderator of today's forum with guest speaker David Hemingway. We have been offering forums as a public service for 25 years, bringing conversation on critical issues into the public arena in an atmosphere of tolerance and mutual respect. Our forums are free and open to the public, and we invite the listeners on Minnesota Public Radio, some 60,000 of you, to join us in person. Visit our website at ewestminster.org to learn more about the forum. It's my pleasure to welcome the final speaker in our spring series, At Home in America. David Hemingway is an economist and professor of health policy at the Harvard School of Public Health. He serves as the director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center and the Youth Violence Prevention Center, and is recognized nationally as one of the foremost experts on injury control. In his new book, Private Guns, Public Health, Dr. Hemingway examines the epidemic of gun violence in America from a public health perspective. He describes himself as neither pro-gun nor anti-gun, but pro-health emphasizing sound research, solid data, and common sense policies over party politics and ideology. In his presentation today, Dr. Hemingway will explore how a public health approach to gun violence could yield the same results that it has had in reducing injury and death from infectious disease, auto accidents, and tobacco consumption. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, David Hemingway. Thank you very much. I promised my publisher that I would always keep pushing this book, Private Guns, Public Health. It's less than $20 on Amazon.com. Um, private guns, the focus is not on military weapons in Switzerland and Israel. There's lots of military weapons. We're talking about private guns. And we're talking about public health. That's my field, trying to help people live longer, healthier lives, reducing disease, reducing what I'm mostly interested in, injuries and violence. What this book tries to do is summarize the scientific literature about guns, trying to collect good data and do good studies. If we want to understand what's going on with the 300 million people in the United States, the 5 billion people in the United States, we really need good data and good studies. The book summarizes the scientific literature talking about gun storage, gun carrying, self-defense gun use. Today, I'm just going to talk about one aspect of the literature, and that's the relationship between guns and death. And secondly, I want to talk about what the public health approach is. Injuries are a very important problem in the developed world. If you die before the age of 40 in the United States, for example, you're more likely to die of an injury rather than a disease. The leading cause of injury death is motor vehicles. This is true in every developed country. What's different about the United States is that our second leading cause of injury death is firearms, and sometimes it's a very close second. Firearms are a major public health problem in the United States. This is different from every other high-income country. Every day in the United States, 80 people die from firearms. Another 160 people every day are wounded but don't die, so we're talking about traumatic brain injuries, spinal cord injuries. Criminals use guns in the United States about 1,000 times a day. And then there's lots and lots of gun use for intimidation in battering relationships and intimate partner violence. The leading cause of, injury of firearms deaths in the United States is suicide. We have more suicides than homicides in the United States. We have more gun suicides than gun homicides. In terms of suicides, about 54% of all suicides are firearm suicides. If you talk about suicide in the United States and you do not talk about firearms, you are missing more than half the problem. Two-thirds of our homicides are gun homicides. You have to talk about guns if you're talking about homicides in the United States. And every day in the United States, about two people are unintentionally killed with a firearm. In terms of non-fatals, self-harm isn't that great because most people who attempt suicide with a firearm die. 
and the people who don't, it's sort of horrible. They blow their face off, uh, and it's just horrible. In terms of non-fatals, though, what jumps out is the number of unintentional firearm injuries. Every day in the United States, 50 people, on average, are unintentionally wounded with a firearm, and about two die. And another 50 people, mostly kids, are wounded with BB guns and pellet guns. Some people say that the United States has a crime problem, and we do, but not compared to other high-income or developed countries. High-income is defined by the World Bank. There are 25 other high-income countries. These are uh, all, almost all democracies, England, Germany, France, Japan, and so forth. Some people say we have a violence problem, and we do, but not compared to other high-income countries. If you look at victimization surveys, consistent victimization surveys across all the high-income countries. The United States is an average country. We have an average robbery rate. We have an average sexual assault rate. We have an average burglary rate, and so forth and so on. We are just an average country. There's even a study that just came out that we have an average bullying rate. Our kids don't bully each other in schools any more than kids in other high-income countries. What differentiates us, though, from every other high-income country is our death rate our homicide rate, our lethal violence rate, and most of our lethal violence is gun violence. We have, for example, about 10 times the firearm homicide rate of the other frontier countries, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. We have much higher relative rates of homicide compared to all of Europe, and even we do worse compared to Japan. We are just an incredible outlier. In Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore, one of the things he got really wrong, he said that we have this, sort of the same number of guns as Canada. We don't. We have many more guns. We have somewhat more handguns, but the key thing is that we have lots, lots more handguns. We have about 70 to 100 million handguns. They have uh, something like hundreds of thousands of handguns. And secondly, we have much more permissive firearm regulations than any other developed country in the world. Uh, there's a survey done by the United Nations. They ask questions, for example, uh, do you need a permit to get a gun? Virtually every other country says yes. We say no. Do you need a license to get a gun? Do you need training to get a gun? This is true in virtually every other high-income country. It's not true in the United States. And if you look at virtually all the issues in terms of sort of sensible gun policies, they're true in every other developed country. They're not true in the United States. So I said I'm just going to talk briefly about what's the relationship, what do the studies show of the relationship between guns and death. There are two types of studies, ecological studies looking across countries, looking across regions, across states, across cities, and then there are case control studies. The ecological studies all show that where there are more guns, there are more death. In areas where there's higher levels of household gun ownership, there's more homicide because there's more gun homicide. There's more suicide because there's more gun suicide and there's more accidental gun deaths. These studies have held lots and lots of variables constants that you think could matter. Poverty, alcohol consumption, unemployment, divorce, education, violent crime, depression, and so forth. One of the things that's very important to control for, to account for, is urbanization. Because at least in the United States, in urban areas, there's much more violent crime. And so you want to compare urban areas to urban areas and rural areas to rural areas. And when you do, where there's more guns, there's more death. Now, I want to talk about two groups where it's hard to blame the victim. Children, I'm going to talk about children age 5 to 14, and women. How are we doing, we are a gun culture in the United States, how are we doing protecting our children? It says a lot about our society, a society, how well you protect your children. How well are we doing? Here's a study done uh, by the Centers for Disease Control. They looked at eight people aged 5 to 14 in the United States versus all the other high-income countries. In terms of gun homicide, a child in the United States is not 20% more likely to be murdered with a gun, or 50% more likely, or twice as likely, or four times as likely, or eight times as likely, or 12 times as likely. A child in the United States is 17 times more likely to be murdered with a gun than an average child in France, or Britain, or Japan, or Canada. Our overall homicide rate for children is six times higher than the average. 
How about suicides for these young kids, 5 to 14 years old? A child in the United States is 10 times more likely to find a gun and be depressed and have a bad grade and kill himself than a child in other high-income countries. The non-gun suicide rate for these children is identical in the United States compared to other high-income countries. And a child in the United States is nine times more likely to be unintentionally killed with a firearm. We are just a real outlier. I teach in public health. There's lots of foreign students, and they all say, how can we allow this to happen? And Why don't we do something? And the answer is, it's hard for me to explain. One of the things which uh, we've looked at is states. Which states do well, which states do badly? Why is there more deaths in some states, more deaths in the other? And you do all these studies with all 50 states holding things constantly. Again, where there's more guns, there's more death. Let me just give you a feeling. One of the things I've done is let's look at the states with few guns and compare them to the states with the most guns and see how we're doing protecting our children. The Behavioral Risk Factor Survey in 2001-2002 interviewed more than thousands of pe people in every state, asked them, is there a gun in your house? The six to five states with the fewest guns I was looking at, states like Massachusetts, where I'm from, New Jersey, home of the Sopranos. The sixth state was New York with the fewest guns. I said, let's put that in the states with the fewest guns. Lots of crime in New York, terrible place. Let's compare that to the states with the most guns. And let's try to get the same number of people so we can just look at, the, at, at instead of rates, real people dying. Now, the states with the most guns, and typically the most permissive gun laws are the mountain states and the southern states. And in the mountain states, not many people are living there, so when you, add, you try to get enough states so you have the same number of people in these low gun states and the high gun states. The high gun states include like Wyoming, Montana, Arizona, North Dakota, Mississippi, Utah, Louisiana, and so forth. So we looked at a situation over the last five years where the same number of people in the low gun and the high gun states Again, this is just an illustration. It's not the study. The study looks at all the states. But then you look at how are we doing protecting our kids? In the low gun states, between 1998 and 2002, seven kids were unintentionally killed with firearms. Seven kids. That's too many. In the high gun states, 110 children were unintentionally killed with firearms. Same number of kids at risk. In the low gun states, 11 kids found a gun and killed themselves. Too many. In the high gun states, 129 children found a gun and killed themselves. In the low gun states, 49 children were killed in gun homicides. In the high gun states, 198 kid children were killed. And you can do the same thing for any age group. Women, how are we doing protecting our women? In the United States, if you look at all the high income countries, Germany, France, Japan, England, 85% of all the women who are murdered with guns in all the high-income countries, all the democracies, all the industrialized nations, 85% of those people, women, are American women. 75% of all the women who are murdered in the developed world are Americans. And again, when you look at the high and the low-gun states, just tremendous differences. You're eight times as likely to be unintentionally killed with a gun if you're a woman in the high gun states compared to the low gun states. You're six times as likely to, be, to find a gun and kill yourself. Uh, you're four times as likely to be murdered with a gun. In terms of suicide, it turns out means matter. The case fatality rate for suicide, we've done lots of studies on this, if you take a gun and you're depressed and you shoot it and you, you're over 90% likely to die. Most people don't attempt suicide that way. They, they take lots of drug pills or they cut themselves. You're less than 3% likely to die. If you can not have a gun available and if you're depressed and you just take a pill, you basically lived. If you get a gun, you're dead. What we know is that suicide acts are often impulsive. We know that crises are often temporary. If you can just get over those crises, you can survive. And one of the things we know, too, is that 90% of survivors of nearly lethal attempts, people who have done things which everyone thought they would die, they shot themselves in the head and somehow they lived. They jumped off six-story buildings and somehow they lived. Virtually none of these people go on to commit suicide again. 
What we know too is that there have been now 14 case control studies trying to look at, let's look at the homes of people who have committed suicide or have died compared to the homes of people who haven't committed suicide and haven't died. And you hold all sorts of factors constant and what every one, every one of the 14 studies shows in the United States is having a gun in a home is not a benefit in terms of death, it's a real risk factor. People with guns in their homes holding age, gender, community, living alone, alcohol consumption, depression medication, illicit drug use, psychiatric diagnosis, holding all those things constant, a gun in a home is a risk factor for dying in an accident, dying in a suicide, dying in a homicide. And it's particularly a risk factor for women dying in a homicide. It's a risk factor for suicide, a gun in the home, not only for the owner of the home, but the spouse of the owner of the home and the children of the gun owner. Let me talk about the public health approach. What can we do? Public health approach is about prevention. It's not waiting till bad things happen. It's let's prevent things happening in the first place. It's also about community. It's not trying to understand why Mary attempted suicide or why Joe killed John. It's trying to understand why we have 80 gun fatalities every day in the United States and how to reduce that to 75, to 70, to 65, to 60. It's why I'm trying to understand why Massachusetts has such slow rates of violent death compared to Arizona and how we can lower both rates of violent death. And finally, it's not about fault. It's not about blame. It's not let's blame somebody. There's all this fault and blame. What it's about is let's figure out the best ways to prevent. Sometimes it's throwing people in prison, but sometimes it's doing lots of other things to prevent bad things from happening. We talk about the motor vehicle analogy. There's lots of analogies. There's been lots of success stories. One of them is motor vehicles. This is one I like because I worked for Ralph Nader in the 60s and I've been involved in motor vehicle injuries for a long time. In the 1950s, when I was a kid, we were given data which supposedly showed that 90% of all accidents were due to driver error. It was the driver's fault. There were stupid drivers, aggressive drivers, tired drivers, drunk drivers, careless drivers, speeding drivers. What holds the car together? It's the nut behind the wheel. How did we know that 90% of these accidents were caused by drivers? And the answer is the National Safety Council gave police a form to fill out. You could say which of 12 things caused the accident and 10 of them were driver error. So if it's all the driver's fault, what should we do? We ought to focus on the driver. It's their fault. We ought to educate the driver and enforce the traffic laws. Education and enforcement. Education and enforcement. That's the mantra, was the mantra then. This is the mantra today of the gun lobby. But in the 50s, in the 1950s, studies by public health physicians began asking a different question. Not who caused the accident, who's at fault, who's to blame, but what caused the injury? Why were people dying? A lot of people were dying because steering wheels, which didn't collapse, went right through their lungs when there was a collision. A lot of people were dying because their faces were ripped apart by glass in the windshield, which wasn't safety glass. A lot of people were being thrown from the car and their heads would hit cement or their heads would hit the hood and they would crack and they would die. And if you were lucky enough to stay in the car, the passenger uh, compartment would be filled up by the engine. The engine would come right in and crush you. And public health physicians began saying, aren't there things about the automobile that we can change? Aren't there things about the highway that we can change? Nobody we know of who has gone off the road into a field has ever died. But a lot of people have gone off the road into man-made objects along the side of the road have been killed. Can't we do something about it? The goal was let's create a system where it's less likely to make errors, where it's hard for people to make errors. Let's make signage and roads really good. Let's make a system where it's hard to behave inappropriately. Yes, we have speeding drivers who kill pedestrians. We could just enforce the laws, but there's lots of other things we could do. We could separate the pedestrians from the drivers. We could put in speed bumps and drivers will suddenly slow down even without enforcement. Turns out there are 20 ways of quote traffic calming. We have chicanes and neck downs to slow down drivers without doing anything about enforcement. And finally, let's make it so when people make mistakes and behave inappropriately, which they always do, that no one will get seriously injured. Today, cars are much safer than they were. We have lap shoulder belts, airbags, collapsible steering columns. Highways are much safer. The emergency medical system is much better. There's really no evidence that drivers today are much better than they were in the 1950s. Indeed, a lot of people think drivers are worse today because road rage increases with traffic. Fatalities per mile driven in the United States have fallen 
without doing really very much about the driver. We have a wonderful data system. We have three data systems. With Every time there's a motor vehicle death, we collect all sorts of information consistently and comparably across time. These data are given to researchers. Researchers, now we know what works and what doesn't work. We know that speed kills. You raise the speed limit, people will die. Right turn on red injures pedestrians. We know that motor vehicle inspection laws don't seem to have any effect at all. We know driver's education seems to have no effect at all on fatalities, except letting kids drive earlier and die younger. This approach is the same approach we're using. It's a systems approach we're using, the same approach for medical errors. We're trying to figure out ways. 10 years ago was, who made that error? Who's the doctor who made that error? Today, the notion is, let's have a system so it's hard to make errors. And in anesthesiology, for example, we've reduced medical error. The number of people dying under anesthesiology in the last 20 years, we've reduced by over 90%. Not because anesthesiologists are any good, but because it's hard to make errors now. The system, you're about to make an error, and buzzes and whistles blow, and it's hard to make an error. What's the lessons? We ought to have a systems approach, rather than just blaming one individual at a time. In motor vehicles, many policies help. There's no one policy that's made the difference. We're going to have lots of cars in the United States. We're going to have lots of guns in the United States. How can we get what little benefit we get from guns and still prevent all these problems that are caused by guns? And it turns out no one policy is the key. In motor vehicles, there were like 50 different policies, all of which reduced motor vehicle deaths. Regulatory agency turned out to be the really key in motor vehicles. Anytime there's an issue, it goes to the to a regulatory agency, it doesn't go through Congress. If you can imagine every issue about motor vehicles going through Congress, side impact performance standards, if that went through Congress, people would yell and scream, cars are good, how can you take away our cars, your car grabbers, whatever. What we want is a really scientific approach. And finally, data are important. What are some examples we can do in motor vehicles? There's lots and lots, and what are some examples we can do in guns? There's lots and lots and lots of things. In the book, there's about 30 examples of things we can do. Manufacturers can do lots of things. Right now, we have serial numbers on guns which are very easy to obliterate. When we try to trace guns, often it's very, very difficult because the criminals obliterated the serial number. Why? Because it's easy to do. We can make it so manufacturers make it, you make a gun, you have to make it hard to obliterate the serial number. We know that in the United States, every day, teenagers find their, their, their dad's semi-automatic handgun. They take out the clip. They think the gun's unloaded. They point it, and they shoot. And every once in a while, another teenager dies. And this happens day after day in the United States. I see the clippings. We know this is going to happen. There are easy ways to fix this. You just have magazine safety so that you can't shoot the gun. There are lots of things manufacturers can do. There's lots of things distributors can do. In the United States, we have background checks, but only if you go through a licensed dealer. 40% of gun transfers in the United States are not through licensed dealers. There's, not just, there's no background checks. There's no paper trail. It's really easy to go to a gun show in most states, to go to the flea market, to go over to the internet and buy a gun without any background checks. We ought to have sting operations for scofflaw dealers. We have about 80,000 dealers. A lot of them um, are willing to sell to criminals, and we know that because every time there's a sting operation, all these dealers sell. And we ought to do things about owners, probably we should have licensing. Anyway, there's lots and lots of things we can do. It turns out that the public in the United States is for every one of the 30 things which I outline in my book. Should we have safety standards for guns? Over 95% of the population says yes. Should we have mandatory training before you're allowed to have a gun? Over 90% of the people in the United States say yes, and so forth and so on. Every one of these 30 options. Gun owners are for virtually every one of these options. And NRA, self-professed NRA members are for the large majority of these things, and yet we don't get any of these things. Now, one of the things we're trying to do is create a good data system for guns. What we're doing is we're combining medical examiner reports, death certificates, police reports, and crime lab reports. So for the first time ever, we're going to have good data. We just had an assault weapons ban in the United States for 10 years. And we don't have a data that says what happened to assault weapon homicides in the United States during that period. Did they go up? Did they go down? Did they go up more in the Northeast or lower in the Southwest? And we're trying to create such a system. The whole public health community is, is behind this and really doing well. And we're learning things which Simple things which people didn't know. For example, where do homicides occur? Turns out that 80% of male homicides occur outside the home. Two-thirds of female homicides occur 
at home. We're in who is at, the female is at risk by whom? By somebody who has a key to your house. So, to conclude, so there's time for questions. In the United States, firearms are a big public health problem. We are different than every other industrialized democracy. We are very, very different. We are doing much, 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 much worse than every other high-income country. And secondly, there's lots of reasonable policies that don't take people's guns away that can really reduce the harm a great deal. Thank you. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm your host, Tim Hart Anderson. Our guest today is David Hemingway. While the ushers collect questions from the audience here at Westminster for the second part of our program, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's forum, the General Mills, Nash, Baker, and Hognander Foundations, as well as the many generous individuals whose support has kept this 25-year tradition free and open to the public. Finally, our thanks to the organization Citizens for a Safer Minnesota, who collaborated with us on today's program. This is the last forum in our spring series, At Home in America, and we invite you to join us again in the fall for our 25th anniversary series, The Arts, Creativity, and the Common Good. Mr. Hemingway, if you would return to the pulpit, we'll test your improv skills with some questions from the audience. Are you ready? Absolutely. How is gun policy in America viewed by other industrialized countries? How do U.S. firearm regulations compare to those in Canada and European countries? Um, as I mentioned, uh, every other developed country has much more uh, strict gun policies than we do. We're just con considered uh, such an outlier. I think the key thing to recognize is that these other countries just can't believe the United States. Uh, we're a bad neighbor. You know, where do Mexican criminals get their guns? In the United States. Where do Jamaican criminals get their guns? From the United States. Where do Canadian criminals get their guns? From the United States. The one thing our crazy sort of gun policy does is it provides incredible ammunition for gun control advocates in every other country. Um, Whenever, if, you want, if you're in Canada and you, you want to register every long gun, whether that makes sense or doesn't make sense, all you have to do is say, do you want to end up like the United States? And everybody says, no, no, no. And it's a winning argument. A question from one of the high school students here. Can you speak to the United Nations efforts to reduce gun violence in developing countries? Yeah, the, the, I don't know that much about it. I, I've talked to lots of people who are involved in this. Um, it's only sort of recently that the, in, that the international community has really understood how important, quote, small arms are. It's not only military weapons which are killing people, it's, it's small arms are killing people. There's huge problems in Jamaica from small arms, huge problems in Colombia, huge problems in South Africa. Um, and the international community is trying to do a number of things. One is to try to regulate the transfer of firearms, so it's not so easy for Jamaican criminals to get guns uh, from outside. It's not like they're being manufactured in Jamaica. You use the term guns during your talk. Is there a difference in results of your studies between handguns versus long guns or hunting weapons? Yeah, the, one of the big differences is that the, the gun of choice for crime is handguns. There's no question about that. Uh, most criminals use handguns. It's easily concealable. That's the, the use. In terms of suicide, uh, long guns are still a big problem. Uh, uh, for children, uh, since they have trouble getting handguns often, suicides are more often now, the data show, more likely to be from long guns. Uh, long guns, uh, over half the, the suicides for children uh, under 18 years old are long guns. About 40% of suicides for adults are long guns. Uh, we don't have actually good data about uh, unintentional injuries yet. We don't have a really good data system that says for unintentional injuries, uh, they occur, we don't know whether they occur more often with long guns or handguns, indoors or outdoors, self-inflicted or other-inflicted. Uh, but in terms of crime, the big problem is handguns. We do hear of problems with people from guns, this questioner asks, but we almost never hear of bad situations avoided by people with guns protecting themselves. Do you know of any such examples? 
Uh, yeah, um, we probably at Harvard done more studies about self-defense gun use than anybody. We've done four major surveys uh, looking at self-defense gun use. Um, and there are some times when people have used their guns successfully. But let me talk a minute about self-defense gun use. Uh, one of the things we discovered is that guns in the home are more likely used to intimidate wives in the home than they are to protect against intruders. Uh, we've learned that true, genuine self-defense gun use with a gun is very, very rare. Uh, there was a study that came out in 2004 in the Journal of Criminology, for example, in looking at the National Crime Victimization Surveys. They interviewed thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over 10 years. There were 1,119 incidents where people were sexually assaulted, almost all women, 1,119. Do you know how many times they used, were able to get a gun to threaten to use a gun in self-defense? Once. Uh, Self-defense gun use is a, is, is a funny thing. Um, a lot of people think they're using a gun in self-defense. If you ask criminals, why did you use your gun? A whole lot of the time they'll say, we use it in self-defense. I always went to rob a 7-Eleven store. The reason I had a gun was not to hurt people. And lo and behold, somebody drew a gun against me. I had to protect myself. I used my gun. Um, when we, in our surveys, we asked people, tell us the story about when you used your gun in self-defense. And some of the stories are compelling, but a whole lot, most of them are not. Most of them are just escalating arguments. And all you're hearing is one side of the argument. So what we've done, for example, is we took the verbatim accounts of the self-defense gun use and sent them to criminologists and to criminal court judges. So here's an example. Um, I was sitting on my porch. Um, my neighbor came over. We got into an argument. He threw a beer at me. I went and grabbed my gun. And most people, you know, that's, that's just an escalating argument. That's not self-defense gun use. The problem is, for guns, is that in your life, the typical person may have zero, one, or two times, typically zero or one, even if you're carrying a gun a lot, to use your gun appropriately in self-defense. You have lots and lots of times to use it inappropriately in hostile interactions, when you're scared, when you're angry, when you're drunk, and your heart starts beating. The police, who are really well trained in gun use, make mistakes all the time. And most people who you have guns aren't really well trained in self-defense gun use. The, the other thing I would emphasize is that not having a gun does not make you unarmed or helpless. There's really no good evidence that having a gun protects you. It, it turns out it protects you against robbery about losing money. It doesn't seem to protect you more than other things about getting hurt. Uh, there's a study that just came out that showed that probably the two best things you can do we're not sure about doing nothing, but if you're going to do anything that looks like nothing is better than, in terms of not getting hurt, running away or calling the police. Um, and the, the problem is that a gun in the home we know is a risk factor for all these other problems. Uh, but, you know, I, I go to Australia, New Zealand, and so forth, and most of those people, they, they don't, unless they're hunters, uh, they, they don't have guns in the home for protection. And they would, they would think, why do we need a gun in the home for protection? Uh, are you, you know, are you, how afraid are you? Because basically they have lots of crime, but they, they feel like needing a gun. You're sort of a wuss. They think we're, I mean, that's all I heard all the time. Where you guys are wusses. You know, you, you, we play real football without pads. You need pads. You need guns. You know, what kind of people are you? How do you respond to the slogan, when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns? Well, unless it's a tautology, what the evidence really shows is that uh, where guns are regulated, fewer criminals have guns. Where guns are regulated, there, are many, there may be the same number of robberies, but there are fewer gun robberies and thus fewer gun deaths. Uh, in every other developed country uh, where guns are regulated, um, there are much, much fewer uses of guns in crime. In the same way in the United States, where guns are better regulated, uh, there are fewer gun uses in crime. Minnesota's legislature just repassed a concealed carry law this week. The claim has been made that nothing bad has happened, or very little bad has happened during the 13 months that the law was in effect, proving its success. How do you respond to that? Do you think conceal and carry legislation actually promotes safer gun usage, as is often cited by those in favor of this legislation? Um, there actually is science on this. There have been lots and lots of studies, uh, and the results are mixed. Uh, we don't expect a big effect 
because typically um, not that many people are getting permits as a percent of the population. Some of those people are already carrying. The people who are getting permits are at pretty low risk for either perpetration or victimization. They're typically males, but they're typically older males, white males, above average income males, males living in suburban and rural areas. And who's at real risk, of course, are males who are young, minority, poor, and urban. But the best studies, the most recent studies, which use most of the data, which use more data because it's, there's, there's been more time, and, and the best uh, models seem to suggest that uh, concealed carry is probably bad. There's a University of Washington study which just came out this month which suggested that uh, concealed carry probably increases homicide. Um, one of the things I, I want to mention about concealed carry uh, is that uh, we've done national surveys twice now and asking people, what do you think about regular citizens being allowed to carry guns into churches, uh, into restaurants, uh, into bars, into government buildings, into university? And over 90% of the population say, no, we feel much less safe uh, if that happens. You know, consider, do you, would you feel safer here if you knew that six people in the audience had guns and that these people when you move from a May issue to a shell issue state, these people are the six people the police who could have given a permit do not want to have a permit. That's what the difference between going to a May issue to a shell issue is, is that you've taken discretion away from the police. So if the police know, for example, that you're a drunk, but you've never had a felony, the police know you beat your wife, but you never had any, you know, had a felony, they have to give you a gun permit now in a shell issue state, where the opposite is true in a May issue. We just did a number of studies about road rage gun carrying. Uh, who is likely to cut people off, to, to aggressively follow other people, to make obscene gestures at other people? And not surprisingly, it's people who drink, it's males, it's young people. But who else it is holding all other things constant, it's much more likely to be people with guns in their cars, uh, which is not very, it's somewhat disturbing. Are you with Florida's new self-protection law? If so, could you comment on that law? Um, I mean, in Florida now, it used to be, um, in most states, your home is your castle. If, you know, someone comes into your home, um, you know, you can always protect yourself. Um, in some states, you, you were supposed to um, not kill anybody if you didn't have to. Uh, but now, in Florida, it's very strange. It says that if you're in the street and you feel like somebody is... Uh, disturbing you, attacking you, and you feel threatened, you can kill them, uh, which, is, which is very, very frightening uh, to me. Because what we know from looking at all these self-defense gun use, these self-reported self-defense gun uses, where you only hear one side of the, of the hostile interaction and not the necessarily true side, is that the people get afraid uh, and they use their guns uh, often inappropriately. Do you have any data on the connection between violent video games and the use of weapons? And particularly, this questioner asks comparative data between U.S. and high-income countries in relationship to gun deaths and video games. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any data. I mean, I don't think violent video games are that good. My son used to play uh, um, a game in which you tried to run over pedestrians. Um, and, you know, he liked it, but, um, you know, somehow I can't think it's good, but as far as I know, and I haven't seen any real studies, as far as I know, most countries, you know, the kids are able to get these violent video games, and that is, is maybe bad for all countries, but it doesn't explain the differences between the United States and other countries. The same as bullying doesn't explain the differences. Kids are exposed to lots of violence. They probably should be exposed to less, but it doesn't explain the differences between states with few guns and states with many guns, countries with few guns and countries with many guns. How do you account for the high incidence of gun ownership, not gun use, but gun ownership in the U.S.? Um, I think it's, a, it's historical. I mean, most people own guns. They own long guns. They own them for hunting, which is fine. Uh, people like to target shoot. Uh, we have uh, more of a gun culture than other countries. Um, it, it's the gun ownership is not necessarily a problem if we had reasonable, sensible gun laws. The problem right now, we have gun ownership, but people, we've done lots of studies on gun storage. A lot of people store their guns very inappropriately. Uh, they say, oh, I trained my six-year-old. Now I can store my gun loaded. It's what? Don't you know anything about child development? Don't, don't leave a loaded gun or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old uh, lying around. Um, so, so it's, the second thing is, is that we've made it so easy for anyone to get a gun. Every other country, basically, you want a gun, you better have some training to show you and understand the proper use of the gun. Uh, and, you know, we, we want to make sure you're licensed. Uh, in the United States, anybody can buy a gun. 
You can go to, you know, most states, you can just go to any gun show, no questions asked. And people have done this all the time and basically said, look, I, I'm not, a, you know, I probably couldn't pass a background check. Let me sell me a gun. And the, and the private owner will say, sure. Um, and, and that's the, a big problem in the United States. This questioner asks uh, about the gun lobby and their legislative influence. The gun lobby has gotten laws passed across the U.S. that limit collection and dissemination of data regarding gun crimes and criminals, including gun permit holders. How do we get the data we need to understand this public health problem fully? Um, it, it is a, it's a really shame. And one of the things we, you, know, you want to do is understand what works and what doesn't work. Uh, that's what we, you know, in motor vehicles, it's so important to know what works and what doesn't work. And what works, you need good data, you need good studies, you need money for studies. In the United States, uh, we don't have very good data. That's one of the reasons the public health community has been trying to push for good data, uh, to figure out what is working and what's, what's not working. I mean, the, the goal is to do those things which are really cost effective, which are going to reduce injury and death. Uh, and you need good data to do that. And unfortunately, uh, for whatever reasons, the gun lobby has been one of the forces making it very, very difficult to do good studies because we don't have good data. Another question from one of our high school students. Are there any current gun control regulations based on health? Oh, I think most of the, the arguments for uh, almost all these regulations are based on health. They're not based on anything else. It's not based on recreation or education. I mean, it's just based, we have lots of guns. How can you figure out ways to, um, you know, reduce the problem in terms of health? That's sort of the main argument. Uh, uh, e even regulations about Hunter Orange uh, is just to reduce uh, uh, injuries to hunters. Uh, all the arguments are basically about sensible gun leg legislation or about safety and health, uh, everyone. And different states uh, have done better and worse, and you can see that in their statistics about how many people are dying. Are there any states or cities that have done particularly well in addressing uh, the gun problem through public policy or legislative action? Yeah, in, in the past year, few years, California has done very well. Um, Massachusetts, uh, where I'm from, I know more about, has done very well. Um, you know, right now in Massachusetts, um, you can't just go buy a gun from anyone. Basically, you've got to go buy a gun from a licensed dealer. You can't buy a gun. Um, just to give you a feeling, in 1997, this is really about gun safety and a little anecdote uh, about gun safety um, and gun carrying. I was at the um, American Public Health Association meetings in Indianapolis, uh, and we were at a restaurant and waiting in line, and a guy came in, a local with a CCW permit, very nice person. Um, something fell on the floor. He went to pick it up. Out of his pocket dropped a Derringer. It hit the ground. It went off and it shot two female delegates. Um, we have guns in the United States which when they drop can go off. There's no, we have no regulatory agency to say, no, you can't do that. Um, and in Massachusetts, you can't just sell guns. They have to pass certain requirements. They have to pass certain safety requirements. And basically, we had a very um, progressive attorney general who said, these are public health and safety issues. Um, there's lots of things we can also do, um, you know, working with the police in Massachusetts, we've done really well. Um, the, the community and the police working together, uh, some states like have preemption laws which prevent communities from doing things. Uh, we don't, we have, we have enabled the communities to work with the police and to really try to reduce uh, these problems. Could you say more about the connection between race, uh, ethnicity and gun violence? Right. Um, what we know is that in terms of suicide, whites have a much higher suicide rates than African-Americans. Uh, what we know in terms of homicide is that people who are poor, who live in ghettos, who don't have much uh, chance to succeed, have much higher rates of violence and gun violence. Uh, and in the United States, the people who are most discriminated against probably are African-Americans, and they have by far the highest rates of, of, of homicide. Uh, but if, even if you compare just our white homicide rate against Europe, we look really bad. Uh, but our, our African-American homicide rate is, is terrible. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, the, these kids, uh, they, have, they don't see that they have much of a future. Um, they're teenagers, um, and they have guns. And basically, uh, you know, some of them are making money. The only way they can make money is selling drugs. And the drug market is very violent. And uh, after a while, it gets so, it's not just protecting drugs, it's that more and more kids have guns. And anytime you're disrespected, this is how you make your way in life. Uh, is if you back down, uh, you're dead meat, and so you 
don't back down, and so you have all this gun violence breaking out, out and uh, people die, and it's just terrible. It's just terrible to have a, to realize that in this country, compared to other countries, we allow such incredible rates of gun violence. A further detail on that same line of questioning. Are youth of color living in economically depressed areas at greater risk to experience gun violence? I believe you said yes. Yeah, absolutely. Then European-American youth living in more middle-class areas. And do you have any specific data on how much more at risk youth of color would be? Oh, it, in, terms of, in terms of death, it's like 20 times higher. It's just, just enormously higher. Um, one of the things which, which is hard in places like New York and Boston, we try to make it hard for adolescents to get guns and we have really good laws. The problem is that we live in a country where there are incredibly permissive gun laws. So we can make it so kids in Boston do not get guns from Boston. They do not get guns from Massachusetts. Where do they get guns from? They get them from states with very permissive laws. And what they do, for example, is you go down I-95, the Iron Pipeline, and go to states where it's really easy to get guns. To, to used to be Virginia until they created a one-gun-per-month law, but now it's to the Carolinas or to Florida. You go buy lots of guns, you bring them up, you sell them on the streets in New York and Boston, and these kids get guns. And, uh, then unfortunately they shoot each other and sometimes then sh shoot innocent people and shoot and it's, it's you know it's sort of like the wild west where no one is telling you to check your guns it's question about the wild wild west how does the US history of the wild wild west contribute to current ideas of uh, high personal firearm ownership uh, I, I think it I think it does I think you know I was raised watching TV uh, in the 50s and 60s at one time I think there were 26 westerns on primetime so I can tell you all about what the Western said, which is not at all when you read the literature about what really happened in these communities. Uh, in these communities, what people tried to do is they realized that combining youth and alcohol and guns was a deadly combination. So what they really tried to do is get the guns out of there. I mean, these, these, a lot of these places had very strict gun control laws, and that's how they um, helped reduce gun violence. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there were lots of guns, but the places which did the best tried to figure out ways to regulate guns in a sort of a reasonable way. How do the odds of being the victim of a crime, a gun crime, uh, vary between low gun and high gun states overall for women or for children? Um, what we really know is less about uh, you know, the, the likelihood of being, as a kid, being robbed with a gun. Uh, it, it, what we know is that robbers in high gun states are much more likely to use guns. Uh, what we know, is, as I sh uh, mentioned, is that uh, you're much more likely to die from a gun in high gun states. Um, women are at much lower risk um, than men, but who women are at risk for are their intimate partners. Uh, men are at risk for people on the streets. Um, but uh, I, there's, there's, I don't know of any evidence that shows that uh, people in low gun states are more careful, uh, they're not necessarily less depressed, uh, they're not necessarily nicer. Uh, indeed, our, our one study we did about road rage, it looks like uh, liberals in the Northeast are somewhat more likely to give the finger uh, in road rage. Uh, but you're much, much less likely to meet a gun and die from a gun. How much consideration has been given to our health by the rise of well-armed private militias, such as the one which has been allowed to guard our border with Mexico? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, people have sort of different, you know, in public health, that's the focus is public health. You know, uh, the militias, I think, have sort of different agendas. And I don't know that much about, you know, the militia that they're trying to prevent uh, people from uh, coming across the border. Um, but the public health approach is really just about public health, and that's the goal. Uh, can you describe your own personal firearms experience? Have you ever owned a weapon? Are you trained in uh, using a weapon? Any shooting experience? Any competency in these matters? Um, uh, I mean, I, it is interesting because when I worked for Ralph Nader, everyone wanted to know what car did he drive. You know, so it's like that. You know, so and I do research about about motor vehicles, and I know very little about you know how you know which is the better motor vehicle. I, I, a lot of the research I do, I do research about uh, stairway falls, and I know nothing about stairways. Um, my my firearm experience is that the few times I went target shooting, I thought this is okay. This is. You know, I mean, uh, I wanted more exercise. I didn't want something to do something that wasn't so loud. I didn't get so dirty. Uh, I wanted something where I would compete against human beings. Uh, but that's, you know, I like to play basketball and tennis. And I just thought, but I, I played, it turns out I played um, a lot of survival. 
uh, with paintball guns, which is probably you know it's crazy and somewhat dangerous. But that was really fun because you're running in the woods and killing people, but nobody got hurt. I mean, the, the, the kinds of kinds of things which are fun is when you kill people and then everyone goes to the seashore after it's all you know. That's what you want. And the problem with with real guns is that you shoot and it's done. It's it's all over and you can't take it back. Um, guns are just so lethal. That's the difference between guns and knives even, or, or most other violent products. If the overwhelming majority of Americans want stricter gun control programs, what forces are keeping these programs from being put into practice? Um, you know, I'm not a political scientist. So, so I mean, and uh, what I think is you have to realize that what the majority wants in terms of the electorate is not always what we get. Uh, in the United States, uh, we have money matters a lot. Uh, people in, foreign, in other countries think what we really need is campaign finance reform. In the United States, we have single issue lobbies which have incredible power. Uh, if, if you ever go to a legislative hearing about firearms, 90% uh, of the people might be for this thing, but they don't show up because it's not there of interest. Who shows up are five guys in fatigues or 10 people in fatigues yelling and screaming, you're trying to take my grandmother's gun away. Who needs it in some remote area? Um, I, I think I would actually say the big reason we don't get a lot of things we deserve or we should have or maybe we get what we deserve is that we're not very good citizens. Uh, people, you know, I mean, I'm just hoping about global warming that there are people out there who are trying to help pre pre prevent global warming, but I'm not doing anything. I give a little money here and there, but most people just, you know, go home and watch television and hope for the best. Uh, and what you need is you need people to, you know, really make a difference. And the reason what I learned from Ralph Nader was that a small number of people can make an enormous difference. It is just incredible. One of the groups that's made a big difference is Mothers Against Drunk Driving. What a difference they have made. And all they've done basically is they went into courtrooms and sat when drunk drivers were being sentenced. And they just would go to the judge and say, here, we're three little old ladies and loved ones of ours got killed by drunk drivers. We're just gonna sit here and we're gonna watch the kind of sentence you put on this drunk driver who's been now, um, you know, been uh, convicted four times. What are you gonna do? And suddenly, the, the, they, they, this was no longer just a slap on the wrist. And that made just an enormous difference. It was just a small number of people and small numbers of people can really matter. Thank you, David Hemingway.